Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, where I have with me actor and voice actor Robbie Rist, who has held several roles, including Cousin Oliver in The Brady Bunch, Stuffy in Doc McStuffins, Michelangelo in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Choji from Naruto, to name a few. So thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, 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 right away, Andrew, for God's sakes, man, you know, and being an actor and being a voiceover actor is the same thing. They're not two different things. As a matter of fact, when I teach voiceover, I tell people that I go, it's the same thing. The only difference between voiceover acting and on camera acting is you're limited in movement, but your imagination has to be firing on all cylinders in both cases. So the next time we have this discussion, we're just going to call it actor, aren't we? Absolutely, and I am super excited to do this, because this is the best way how to start this podcast off. So, you've been voice acting since you were a kid. How did you initially get into the industry, and I stand corrected, and acting includes both live action and voice? That's right. So, I bitched my parents into it. Basically, I was an odd little dude. And when I was four, I became obsessed with the 1930s universal horror movies, the Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, all of that stuff, especially the Wolfman. For some reason, there's something about that story that even resonates with me now. But at four years old, I'm really into these movies. And I start walking up to my parents like or at dinner or whatever going, you know what? Really like to be in a monster movie. And they'd go great and they'd continue talking and after a while i'd be like no 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 listen to me really like to be in a monster movie and they're like that's really cute they go on talking i'm like wait wait so after about six months of i wouldn't call it casual haranguing i would call it at a certain point it was fairly constant and at a certain point the monster part went away and all that was left was movie and after a while my parents got so ill of me doing this that they said all right we'll take the little guy on a cattle call He'll see how awful it is, and he'll not want to do it. Sound plan. And then I got the job, and I loved it so much that I said, I'd really like to do that again. And they went, all right. So they took me, and I got that one. And then the one after that, I had a run of six before I finally didn't get one. And all that made me do is go, the hell do you mean you don't get every one? Yes, you do. And then I worked a lot. And now every Thanksgiving, my mom goes a toast to my son who wasted 11 years of my life driving him around. And now you come into acting and you're four. By the time they took me on the audition, I was six. I harangued for a while, actually. So after your haranguing and you started (laughs) when you were six, did you have any prior voice or even regular acting training coming into the industry? It always came naturally. So I was playing violin at three and I was singing a lot around the house and I would take records to school and for show and tell, I would mime along to the record and I was always performing. You know, a lot of guys, gals too, they get into art when they're conscious individuals making a decision to be an artist. This is something I want to do. Art for me is something I just always did. I just naturally did. I didn't get into it to meet chicks. You don't really do that at four. So I just kind of always did it and wanted to do it as a job and I ended up doing it as a job and I am still doing it. 
And now you had several roles, but one of the roles that I want to talk about that I think a lot of people know is your role as Cousin Oliver mm-hmm. in six episodes of The Brady Bunch. What is the story behind this? It's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely... Oh, I see what you're... I'm sorry. So the story is that I read for what was going to be another spinoff show with Ken Barry called The Kelly Kid. And it was going to be about a divorced father raising two boys on his own. And Ken Berry was a brunette. And there was just no way, even with dark hair, was anybody buying it from me. So I didn't get that job. But when the Oliver thing came up, they went, remember that little blonde dude? Why don't we get him in here? So the history that I hear is that there were 600 people brought in to read on that thing. And somehow I got it. And then I worked for six weeks and it was somewhat popular and then it entered syndication and then all hell broke loose. Then it became this kitschy relic of another time. When it was on, it wasn't considered ironic at all. Bill Murray had not looked at the camera on Saturday Night Live and gone, Star Wars, those near and far wars. The era of irony hadn't set in yet. And then a little after that, that thing happens on Saturday Night Live. You start noticing the Brady Bunch starts coming back, but it comes back as sort of this kitschy, oh my gosh, this thing is so goofy. And obviously with it coming back that way and you acting, how do you feel that affected your career being that you were still new to this industry? Uh, It's been helpful. It hasn't been helpful. It just depends on the situation. I don't know. When did you have your first job? Like six years ago. What was it? It's a camp counselor. All right, camp counselor. So that means you did it basically for six weeks, right? Absolutely. All right. Now, picture, if you will, that that job that you did for six weeks, you're not only still talking about when you're 53, but you're still doing it. I mean, I'm still an actor. I'm still doing the thing. And people are still talking about this gig that I did when I was nine. If you think about it in those terms, it could just make you insane because it was a six-week job. And so for the rest of your life, people are like, oh my God, it's Andrew, the guidance counselor. I know you. I saw you. You were at the camp. It's the same thing. It's crazy. And how does that make you feel that people are still talking I love it. How many people in their lives get a shot at that? I can't believe anybody. And you have to go through the process. I mean, there was a period in there where I was kind of pissed off at it, where I was like, are you kidding me? Come on. The only thing that anybody's ever going to know me for is this thing that I did when I was nine, when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But the truth of the matter is, it's not like I quit working. Whoever that guy was when I was nine was professional enough that here we are however many years later and I'm still doing it. And you've been still doing it. And there's so many roles that you've gone through and you've been a part of. And I want to touch upon some of them as much as I would like Uh to leave three girls and three boys behind us. (laughs) Some of the other things that you worked on was New Temperature Rising show. You don't know about that. You just are reading that as a credit. You never saw that damn thing. You're 11. And I don't think you're that nerdy. Guilty as charged. It was awesome, by the way. So one of the things sometimes I think about, or I'll pull up my IMDb page on a day of feeling like a complete failure, and I'll go through it, and I'll be like, I worked on that thing, and that person was in that, and that's crazy in Temperature Rising. I worked with James Whitmore. 
You don't know who James Whitmore is, but I do. And those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. James Whitmore. And then I worked with James Whitmore's son, James Whitmore Jr. And then Paul Lind and also Cleavon Little, who was in Blazing Saddles, for God's sake. I mean, I wasn't in Blazing Saddles, but I was in something with the guy who was in Blazing Saddles. I think that's cool. And what is it like to work with all these cool, famous people and be part of rifting with them, for lack of a better well, word? At the time, I didn't know. I was a kid. History is something that has more gravity the more of your own that you have. So now I can look back at some of these experiences I had and go, are you kidding me? I worked with television royalty, for God's sake, on more than one occasion. I worked with Jonathan Winters, man. There's all of this stuff. At the time, I was like, oh, man, I don't have to go to school. So it was basically that. And now I do want to touch upon that because as a child actor, how did you balance school and acting? I was pretty good at it. I got an award in junior high. I missed 133 days of junior high. That's just insane. And I got out with an A average. To an extent, I still have it. The muscle isn't as powerful as it once was. But I used to be able to like look at a page of dialogue and have it committed to memory. It was just this thing I could do. So working wasn't that much work. And school, only when I started being distracted by other things did all the grades just go... As high school will do. And speaking about school, you became involved with Lucas Tanner as the character <laughs> Glendon. Yeah, yeah, but wait, 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 again. Yes, we can talk about my resume all night, that's fine. But you don't know Lucas Tanner. You never saw a single episode, did you? No, but I do know who David Hartman is. All right, yeah, David Hartman. He was on Good Morning America for like 35 years or something. Just craziness. And a really sweet dude. And it's actually a really good show of incredible 70s-ness. It is so 1970s, sensitive, teacher, kind of involves himself gently in his students' lives and straightens things out. It's very 1970s. But amazing that they haven't rediscovered it yet. Anyhow, moving on from Lucas Tanner and into more yeah. my field, you were also involved in The Bionic Woman. Yeah. And that show is an amazing show. I've seen that show, I'll admit. Well you done, Andrew. Andrew. Good. What was The Bionic Woman like in being part of that show like for you? The episode where she becomes The Bionic Woman on The Six Million Dollar Man touched me so deeply that... I had this massive thing for her. I was like, don't worry, nothing bad will ever happen to you. I'll take care of you, Lindsay, I will. It was maybe a little unhealthy. Anyway, so I got to do like two or three episodes as one of the kids in her classroom. A funny story about how much the business has changed. In one of the episodes, there is a semicircle of desks in a second grade class, and the door opens and a lion walks in to the center of the room with all of these children around and lays down. My 20s were super fun, but this animal, I've never taken that much drugs. It just never happened. That wouldn't happen anymore because the reason they drug the animal is children are super tasty to adult lions. And they were still doing that back then. So now they CG and uh, everybody's a lot more humane about it. But I remember being in that room going, man, that's a really big cat. Yeah, to talk a little bit more about that, you've been 
acting for probably 40 plus years. How do you feel that the industry has changed? Oh man, I was just talking about that today. Everything about it has changed. It's become a lot more corporate. It's become a lot more by the numbers. And I think you can see it in the art that they make. A lot of movies to me look like they're assembled. They don't look like they're crafted, if that makes any sense. When George Lucas was making Star Wars, so much technology was not available to them. They made that entire film by putting film in a camera and only shooting what they could put in front of that camera. And that doesn't exist anymore. Now you can go into it and just go, I can do everything. Well, you want to see the actors do the entire movie running backward? I can make that happen. Do you want to see them turn into butterflies? Watch! And it takes almost no time to get it done, considering if you have enough artists, you can make King Kong, the Peter Jackson one, which is an incredibly well-assembled movie, but there is zero heart at the center of the thing. All art should be like a candy with a crunchy outer shell and a soft, chewy center. And as an actor, do you find that you're struggling to come to terms with how the industry is changing? Just that there's so many people doing it now that there's less work. So there's so many people doing it that maybe in their whole career they might do only two or three things. But there's thousands of them. And so, again, it's not as an intimate business as it once was. I used to go for voiceover jobs to auditions, and I would see the same people all of the time. It was the same hundred people, but we were the ones doing all of this voiceover stuff. And now it's just the floodgates are open. There's nothing you can't do. You can put up a show of your own on the internet. You can do it on radio. You can do video. The Young Turks News Organization, those people are on YouTube. You can do all of that now. And also the standard for which people are willing to accept, all right, this is professional enough. That's really gone down. So you can have a show, quite literally, Syphil and Ollie, and it was sock puppets in front of a green screen. We had to have punk rock music, and there was a lot of stuff that had to happen before people kind of went, yeah, it's entertainment, I'll take it. And it's cool, I rather enjoy it, but it's a really rough around the edges kind of presentation. And there's a few more roles I want to talk about before we dive into your voice acting career side. And one of them is that I'm a big Battlestar Galactica fan. You were in the 1980s miniseries as Dr. Z. So what was that like? All right. So Star Wars, for most people, myself included, somewhat life-changing. All of a sudden, the entire world was like, there had to be spaceships. So Battlestar Galactica comes on, and I'm like, this is awesome. And I was a really big fan for the year, year and a half, two years that it ran. And then it disappeared. I was like, well, that figures. Most of the things that I like, they last six weeks. And I'm like, really? It's done? Damn it. And then they were going to do a new one, and I read for it. And I got it, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to be in a Battlestar Galactica thing. This is so great. Except for the fact that I ended up in the crappy one. Battlestar Galactica 1980, here's the deal. Battlestar Galactica, it is a show from the 50s called Wagon Train. Wagon Train was a show about a, well, a wagon train. And they're always heading toward their destination. They never get there. The whole show is about the trip. It's not about the destination. Battlestar Galactica is the same thing. They have to be on the run all of the time. And then what do they do in the first episode? They find Earth. Great! Now what? It's like they wrote themselves into a corner right off the top. And they had so many good ideas in the first one. 
And as an actor who gets into a crappy show, I think we both agree that it's rough. How did you make your mark on it and deal with it? At the time, I didn't know it was crappy. I watched the first episode and went, oh, that's crappy. I was like so excited because I'm going to be on Battlestar Galactica, 1980. Newer, exciting, and that happened. And the intro is so good where they destroy LA and it's all footage from the movie Earthquake. But you dust your knees off and there are some incredibly... I wouldn't call them beautiful train wrecks. In a way, there are some things that I've done where it's like watching a beautiful bird fall out of the sky on fire. And it looks so beautiful burning up in the atmosphere like that. I have some gigs like that. I was Booger in the Revenge of the Nerds pilot. First off, big shoes to fill, huge Curtis Armstrong fan, and a terrible pilot. So I almost quit acting after that. Yeah, how do you deal with that? I mean, Revenge of the Nerds, I love the first two. Oh, amazing. So how do you deal with filling somebody else's shoes? At a certain point, I didn't give a damn. I just wanted the job. Fine, I'm not going to be him. I'm going to do a whole other thing because you can't do that. He's so good. He's so vivid. I made him closer to what I was. Stonery, smelly dude. And now there's two more shows I want to talk about that are classic 80s, which is Knight Rider, where you were Nick, and Love Boat as Zit. Love Boat, I got to work with, as I tell the story, I seem to forget his name more and more often. We just lost him a couple of years ago. He's a character actor. He was in the series of a Richard Band horror films called Dolls. He was in a bunch of those. But he's the John Belushi character in that Love Boat episode. And... It's the first time I was on a set that I could remember consciously just looking at another actor going, oh my God, this guy is amazingly hilarious. There's probably takes where you can see me going, I can't laugh, I'm at work. That's not what actors do. He was really, really terrific. And Gordon Jump, come on, television royalty once again. Larry Wilcock, on my third go around with him. Melanie Chardoff, Fred Grandy's last year on Love Boat. There was a lot of really cool stuff. And it's a pretty funny episode, even though a second time in my career, it ends with a pie fight. I never thought about that before. Twice in my life, I've been part of shows where the end of the episode ends in a good old-fashioned 1920s-style pie fight. I don't know. The universe is a funny place. It's got a sense of humor. And now you were clearly older when you were working on Love Boat and you were around television royalty. Did you appreciate it more at that stage in your life? I started kind of getting it in my 20s where some people that I worked with, I realized they were total heroes of mine. I would watch them on things when I was a kid and go, oh man, that guy kicks ass. I worked with Dick Van Patten two or three times. And he's Dick Van Patten for God's sake. He's a brand unto himself. They could have just called him Van Patten and people would know exactly who we're talking about. He could have done the share thing so easily. I did a What's Happening episode and the guy who played Larry Tate on Bewitched. Oh, no, you won't know that. No, no, because you're 11. Six years ago, you were a goddamn camp counselor. You need to go back. You can see it on YouTube. I'm going to educate you tonight. Andrew, you're going to leave this experience going, oh, no, no, I'm not going to be schooled like that anymore. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, no. The shame will be so great. But on YouTube, what's happening? The Burger Queen. I've been lucky enough in the time that I've done this to occasionally end up on a defining 
episode of some of these shows. And this Burger Queen episode is one, if you're part of the What's Happening universe, everybody knows the Burger Queen episode. And it's that super cool that I'm part of that. That has nothing to do with me. I didn't write it or anything, but how neat. And now the other one that we mentioned in the question that we drifted away, but we're going to get back to, which is you got to be part of Knight Rider too. You know who I worked with in Knight Rider? Ron O'Neill. Ron O'Neill was Superfly. I worked with Superfly. I could have retired right then. And I have one degree of separation from David Hasselhoff. That's pretty rad if you ask me. And it's not a terrible episode either. And now we're going to talk about my childhood, which is how I discovered you, where you did a lot of voices. And one of the roles that you did that a lot of people know that's from my childhood, a lot of my friends' childhood, is Michael Angelo from the Teenage sure. Mutant Ninja Turtle film series. What in the hell is the story behind this? It was the story of a lovely lady. No. So I had known peripherally about the turtles because... I was in a band with a guy who was a big comic book fan. And I was over at his house one day. He said, oh, I want to show you this. And he showed me kind of a black and white and pretty dark Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing. And then the next thing I heard was they were going to make a cartoon out of it. And I went, kind of grim, isn't it, for kids? Apparently, they kind of sanded off the edges a bit for the TV series. And then the part comes up to read for Michelangelo. And I graduated in 1982. And that was within a year of the song Valley Girl by Frank Zappa coming out. Now, all of that was my graduating class. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, are you aware of this movie? Oh, I love that movie. I have many, many reasons to love that movie. So Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a documentary for me. It's not a funny coming-of-age sex comedy. I went to school with every one of those people. So there was more than one guy. These guys would get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning, drive to the beach, surf for 40 minutes, get in their car and go to school. And they totally talked like this, you know? So the Michelangelo thing comes up, and I'm like, this isn't even acting for me. Apparently they heard something, so great. And it's another thing that I've done that seems to have anchored itself into the bloodstream of the country. It's crazy that there's an entire now third generation of people that are getting turned on by that thing. I don't want to say it's like Star Wars, but it's like Star Wars in that it's generational. Older people go to like seven-year-old kids, have you seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles yet? And I can totally see a seven-year-old going, I'm sorry, what? And somehow, if you're between the ages of 7 and 11, I think, and you see that turtle movie for the first time, it's transformative. And with the turtles, you got to be in two more movies with them. When did you find out that you're going to be reprising your role? And did you know how big they would become when you were voice acting? The first one nobody knew. As a matter of fact, I seem to remember while I was doing my part, they did us all one at a time. And while I was there, I just heard a production guy talking to another production guy. And they're like, I don't know, man. Everybody's saying this thing might be too dark for kids. And I was like, that's interesting. And so I don't think anybody knew what was going to happen. And this thing came out and everybody lost their minds. By the way, one of the funniest things I have ever seen in my life, there's a guy named James Rolfe. He goes by the name The Angry Video Game Nerd. He has a review 
on one of his YouTube thing of the third Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. The poor guy just gets absolutely apoplectic over the fact that he really feels like they wronged him somehow. So great. And the three is my favorite because it's the one where they kept going, hey, if you can think of a way to punch this joke up, go ahead. And I'm like, hell yeah. Let the actor off the leash. Woo. Arf, arf, arf. And now following the third film and how big it became, uh-huh. several years later, you got to appear in the television show as Jet McCabe. I don't even remember that. There's some stuff on that resume that I'm like, are you kidding? Really? Did I do that? I don't know. Is the Batman episode up there? We could talk about that next. I did a Batman the Animated Series. We got to work with Mark Hamill. Seems to be sort of a Star Wars-centric show. It's a weird thing. I guess, ultimately, I'm a character actor guy. So if you need what I do, come and get me. But I'm not like a leading man sort or anything like that. So I do all of these one-off gigs of real Ghostbusters one week. And I just did a new Powerpuff Girls. And I was a voice in the Lord of the Rings online universe video game. I was an orc. Please elaborate what an orc is. I have no idea what an orc is, actually. I'm terrible at all that. When the first Lord of the Rings film came out, I called up my nerdiest friend that I know, Mike Simmons, and I said, Mike, and he went, it's three in the morning, Robbie, what? And I said, there's 11 million characters in this movie. What the hell are they all doing? And I made him stay up and explain to me everybody's quest was. Because too much talking, it's like they walk, they fight a monster, they talk for a bit, then they start walking again. That's all I know. So orcs, I don't know. But they're very big and they're kind of that. The crazy thing about the Lord of the Rings universe, see, this is the beautiful thing about the entertainment business, that you can find an area that's just yours if you do it right. There is a woman whose job it is to make sure that everyone in the Lord of the Rings universe that they shoot talks with the right accent. So she can speak Elven, she can speak Orc. She's like a linguist or something, but she is the keeper of the flame. That, to me, is the most awesome job in the history of awesome jobs. And now one of my favorite things, as a lot of people know, is I love anime and you've been in a few animes, and one of them was Initial D uh-huh. as Iggy Takayuchi. Yeah, no, no. Now, you didn't see that one, did you? No, no, you didn't. I know you didn't. It's sort of like a weird culty one. It has its own crowd. We did it for a bunch of years, like three years or something, but it never did what Naruto did. Naruto is insane. Whatever's going on with that show, and it's the most insane show ever. Just unbelievable. Let's talk about Choji. What is the story behind you becoming Choji? He's the fat guy. He's the fat guy. It's an interesting thing, though, that it's a really democratic show. There's all kinds of everybody that are characters in that show. And I've seen people have on my Facebook page, they've sent me photos of themselves at cons, these 15-year-old girls dressed as Choji. So somebody is finding themselves in that. It's interesting. And how do you feel that Naruto is such a democratic show and that you play one of the characters that a lot of people can't find themselves in? 
you put this stuff together in the rearview mirror because while you're doing it, you're really not thinking about what you're doing. Mostly it's just like, I got to get the job right. And then I read the foreword to a Clive Barker book once, and he was telling a story about how when he started writing, he used a fake name. And then once he started getting successful as Clive Barker, he was getting emails from people going, you know, there's this guy named Blobbity Blah. And I was reading him like 15 years ago. And I swear to God, his stuff is so much like your stuff. It's crazy. And he said the weird thing about doing art is you make it, you raise it up to a certain age, and then you send it out there into the world and it creates its own life. So all of these things that I've done, it's so interesting to do the job and then see what kind kind of life it has. I really hope more people go see Valerian. I have a voice in that. But go see Valerian. It's so cool. And now, one of my favorite moments in Naruto is with Choji when he's fighting one of the Sound 4 ninjas and pretty much nearly dies and is the focus for several episodes. Even though he's a minor character, how do you feel as a voice actor when... No, no, it's you mean I get to do something? Great! To do something badass. There's a lot of the show for most of the characters like, uh, look out! Uh, ah, it's all this kind of stuff. So when you actually get to slow down and he almost does die, he takes the three pills. Japanese artists, I think it must be a rite of passage to just take a bunch of psychedelics for a long period of time and then maybe never touch them again, but whatever you experienced in that six-week period just stays with you forever. And what was cool about Naruto in many ways is that a lot of them reprised their role in the movies and in the video games. And you also did. What was that like for you? Again, I just get to work. It's like on the Doc McStuffins thing, we do games and ancillary stuff having to do with the show. And at this point, I may have started wanting to be in a monster movie, which actually I produced my own horror movie in 2006 called Stump the Band. Stumptheband.com. Stop by today. But after that, it became my living. This is my job. So I want to do as much of this as possible, not only to satisfy my artistic Jones, of which I have a pretty healthy one, also to be able to feed myself and maybe another person someday. And now I want to give you a chance, because I think you just mentioned it, but also to talk about Doc McStuffins as Stuffy. You've never seen that. And it's not because you're 11. As a matter of fact, the main reason you've never seen it is because you're not 11. And that's a good thing, right? You should watch it. It's great. Everyone should watch it. Adults can watch it without wanting to kill themselves. That's what's so great about it. Well, there's a lot of reasons why Doc McStuffins is great. Every cartoon is created to sell toys. That is the deal we make with the devil. But Doc McStuffins also looks like it's going to cause a spike in the amount of women who become doctors. Because there's now a whole generation of little girls walking around with stethoscopes, putting it on their dog and getting a heart reading. So it satisfies a lot of things for me. I think it exists for all the right reasons. I think the message behind it, Chris Nee is a really smart, sensitive, kick-ass person. And she's all over this show. This is like her id being played out. And it wears its heart on its sleeve. And like I said, it exists for all the right reasons. It's strangely, I know it's a show for four-year-olds, but it's one of the things that I'm most proud I've ever been on. And now the last role that I want to talk about is your, I guess, third return to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as Mondo Greco. So what was it like to return to this franchise? Well, first off, I'm working again. And it's good to know that 
I can be a ball hog too, Corey Feldman. And it's like the mob. I get out, they pull me back in. That's how that goes. It's funny. And the artwork's really great. I did some dialogue replacement. They had a big actor who they couldn't afford come in and do some fix work. So I kind of helped fix it. And there's a car race scene that takes place in a desert. And I was like, the artwork is just unbelievably cool. They seem to keep finding new and interesting ways of doing this thing. And now you came into voice acting early 90s. How do you feel that the voice acting world has changed? Just like everything else, the biggest change is the fact that there's a period in history where there were three networks and maybe a handful of local channels in every town. And the gatekeepers for these three networks, they had to make sure that this network was as good as that one, which is as good as that one. So there's so many channels now and so many ways to view all of this stuff that everything's become a niche. So there's the Doctor Who people, there's the Breaking Bad people, the Walking Dead people, but there's not this huge unified thing. Everything's very spread out. And so there's a lot of work that isn't being done by indie people, so they don't have as much money as they once did. Everything that's big cuts both ways. Television is an amazing thing that's also chewing gum for the eyes. So everything cuts both ways. So everyone discovered voiceover, which is kind of a cool thing. But also there are people, I think their careers are a year long now. They just can't work enough to sustain it. I'm so incredibly lucky. I'm constantly going, thank you, universe. This is very nice of you because I managed to keep myself in the game. And now to back away from voice overwork and talk about something that might be a little bit closer to your heart, which is Sharknado. <laughs> Anthony C. Ferrante, the director, and I have a band together called Quint. And mostly in the Sharknado movies, if you hear some sort of pop song being played, if it's not like The Offspring, chances are it's us. And we've done it for all five movies. I've actually been doing music with Anthony in his films probably for 20 years now. He uh, did a Hansel and Gretel knockoff movie for the asylum. Got a bunch of songs in that. And so in all these Sharknado movies, we just did a bunch of songs for Sharknado 5. When the first one was going to be made, I knew about the movie before Anthony did somehow. So I heard about the movie because someone I knew had gone to a film distribution conference, you know, where they sell movies. And the asylum had a booth there. And in front of their booth, they had a little banner that said, Sharknado, enough set and it was a tornado with jerks in it i was like did you see anything interesting he goes oh man by the way we're both b-movie fans i really love that stuff and so he's like went by the asylum booth they had a banner out front that said sharknado enough said and i went tell me this sharknado you speak of is this a tornado that has sharks in it and he said why yes yes it does and the nine-year-old boy in me squealed with delight I was like, this is the best thing ever. And so I was working on that Hansel and Gretel movie with Anthony. And he said, yeah, they've offered me Sharknado. And I jumped up out of my chair and I grabbed him by his lapels of his shirt. And I said, I don't know why, but I have a feeling you should really do this movie. The concept is so insane. I said that the name Sharknado says more in three syllables than a trip to Bountiful does in five. Sharknado, you know exactly what it's about. You know what you're going to get. It's unbelievably brilliant. And Anthony, on a shoestring budget, year after year, delivers a bigger and better movie. Five was insane. 
Tara Reed threw a helicopter. Let me say that sentence again. Tara Reed threw a helicopter. And then at the end, Tara Reed again, her head in a bag. Head in a bag. You don't see that in other movies. Anthony Ferrante has a view of the world that is a little bit diseased, but a whole lot of fun. So Quint, though, the thing that we do, we're available on iTunes. Go to iTunes and look up Quint. And we just had, from the first movie, the song's called The Ballad of Sharknado. is the one that starts with a dun 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 Some kids that are between the ages of 7 and 11 recorded it. And it's up on YouTube out there somewhere. It is the coolest damn thing. I was like, play that thing better than I did. And Sharknado has gotten bigger and bigger each year. And you have music in that. From the first one, did you know how big it would become and what a phenomenon it would become? Again, nobody ever knows. Why did the last two Matrix movies suck? They didn't know they'd have to finish that story out. We did it. Story's done. Boom. What? It's a massive groundbreaking hit. Finish the story! And then they had to do a rush job. So the first Sharknado benefits from it being the first film where, as a country, we all communicated with each other while the movie was being played. It was almost like we were all in the same living room. And it's now become a full-on family thing. There's families that throw parties and they invite a bunch of kids. We're going to watch Sharknado. And I think what Anthony's done actually is made a series of films for the nine-year-old boy and everyone. Because there's 60-year-old guys that I meet. 60-year-old women I mean, they go, oh man, the Sharknado, that's funny. It's not for you. It's not aimed at you. How can you like this? And yet, somehow, it's the nine-year-old boy and everyone that just goes, look, it's a tornado with sharks in it. That is so cool. And as a musician... What is it like for you to have your music? It's an honor. Anthony's a loyal guy. He really takes care of his people. Aside from being really talented, really nice man. I admire people that do what they do for all the right reasons. And he definitely does. And he keeps taking chances on me. And the thing keeps getting better and better. We almost had Olivia Newton-John sing one of the songs, but she got ill. But it's in the movie. We have this little dance song that we wrote. Hilarious. I'm thrilled to death. Are you kidding me? Those kids that recorded the Ballad of Sharknado. That's amazing. The last time we got a video of a bunch of girls from a high school, a vocal choir, doing the song as a vocal choir. And then when the first movie came out, they did a remix of it. That's totally great. All stuff available on YouTube. It's just hilarious that it's taking on a life of its own. And what has it been like being a member of Quint, the music, and the band behind? That part's a job. And it's an opportunity for Anthony and I to sit in a room together and listen to new records that we want to share with each other and also yell at each other a lot going, no, because that sucks. There's a lot of us yelling at each other before we finally get there. And now we spoke about a lot, everything from the Brady Bunch yeah, to yeah. Sharknado. Oh, yeah. But I'm very curious, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but what advice do you have for people who want to act either in live action or voice acting? First thing you do is take an acting 101 class. Go to a junior college. Doesn't matter if the teacher's good or not. Get the nuts and bolts of what you're supposed to do when you learn the dialogue. And then take an improv class. And then take another acting class. And then take another improv class. Around that point, start auditioning for plays and things like that. 
that. The idea is to do the activity of acting as many times in a row as you can. So if you can get on a play where you're rehearsing something for three weeks and you have to go over it and over it and over it, it's going to really help you. Actors don't just read their lines once and they're done. I think Anthony Hopkins, he reads his script 200 times. And then he starts memorizing it. They spend a lot of time putting these performances together that are crafted. And so you have to know that, that you don't just go on the set and they hand you a big machine gun and you go, Madrian! There's a lot of other stuff that happens. And then finally, I mean, you got a lot to promote. So I'm going to give you an opportunity. Do you have anything to promote? I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I'm verbose, possibly offensive, but ultimately I talk to just about everybody. And I got a Reverb Nation page out there. I got a SoundCloud going. Just look up my name. Just do a Google search for my name and a whole bunch of stuff will pop up. I'm part of this Facebook group where we sort of perform songs for each other, but you know, you need a place to put them. So I have every song I ever did for that thing up on YouTube. Just be an acoustic guitar doing kid video theme at one point whatever just look me up or come by facebook and send me a message i'll be like hi as always thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast and we can be found on itunes soundcloud and stitch radio and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts and while you wait for next week's episode you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime comics and pop culture as well as give us a follow on twitter at popanimecomics like our facebook page popanimecomics give us a follow on instagram at popanimecomics and until next week everybody have a wonderful week